And welcome to yet another episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Oh, oh. It's The Dicemen. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we make this podcast happen, along with listeners like you. Yes, true. Listener supported podcast. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yes, but without... The NPR sad trombone oh. of gaming podcasts. <laughs> no, 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 that is not true at all. No, we are the poorly wielded selfie stick of gaming podcasts. <laughs> wow. All wobbly and out of focus, yeah. Hey, look yeah. at me here. You really can't see the event I'm at. But it's awesome, I it promise. Is. The most important thing at this is me. No, ah... Uh, Sorry. Oh, well, hey now. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the, the selfie phase of humanity. Uh. <laughs> well, hey, you know, provide us with a lot of nice memories. Nonetheless, uh, we're here with some topic for you today. It's Topic Tuesday, so we got some nice topic lined up for you. We hope you'll enjoy. Oh, yeah, a good, thorough, and uh, proper examination of a worthwhile topic. And not going to give, you know, like the kimono is fluttering but not yet open. Well, with that bit of tantalization, <laughs> I think that you are well prepared to hang out with us for a while and uh, listen to some gaming topic. But first, we have some call-ins to get into, so we're just going to skip right to that. Oh, I'd better close the kimono again. Yep, first up is Larry Hamilton talking about some Talislana. Take it away, Larry. Hey guys, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. I just got done listening to your episode on Talislanta. I have known about the system since back in the day when it was in those ads in Dragon Magazine but didn't know a lot about the system and so I appreciate hearing about it. Sounds like they've got a pretty rich world and it's interesting some of the things you were talking about. I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, keep up the good work. Alright, thanks for that Larry. Yeah, uh, Talisani is one of those settings that's been tragically underrated throughout its time in the gaming community, and I think it's worthwhile mentioning that it needs a new edition. Yeah, it's full of so many different ideas that are... Oh my goodness, that cat. <laughs> wow, yeah, we're even being critiqued by the, the house pets uh, who are less than amused with us. <laughs> yeah, forgive us that, so... No it... back sass in the peanut gallery. Uh. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, it, it's an underestimated game. There was a lot of stuff in there that is just ripe for harvest by DMs everywhere for any game that you happen to be playing in any system. The the notions, uh, the cultures, the the conflicts. There's there's an awful lot there to be gotten from, and it's just a good experience no matter how you slice it. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out, and uh, it's a good campaign in its own right, and it plays pretty close to a third edition game, kind of minus the feats. Always reminded me of some of the, the classic uh, video game versions of RPGs that uh, came out. You know, very similar in which it, the way in which the system is structured has some similarities. Yeah, it's just a die 20, uh, you know, beat a difficulty check. But it's very easy to master and it's a lot of fun to use. So definitely check it out. And uh, also, speaking of checking out, We've got our good friend from Wheel or Woe podcast, Joe Richter. Uh, ah. Decided to deign to drop by and give us his thoughts on if gaming is fun. Take it away, Joe. Hey, what's up, fellas? It's Joe Richter again, man. Another fantastic episode. 
I was just wondering if there are really people out there talking about how you shouldn't be having, well, no, let me rephrase that, how you should be taking everything super seriously when sitting around the gaming table. To me, that's nuts, man. I would lose my mind. That doesn't sound like any bit of fun whatsoever. But, you know, different strokes for different folks and all that noise. So, you know, you fellas keep on doing what you're doing. I'll keep on doing what I'm doing. And hopefully everybody out there has fun. All right. Peace out. All right, Joe. Thanks for that. Yes. uh, Do people seriously hate fun? No, not really. What it is is a different approach to... I honestly think it's mostly internet whining where somebody's trying to establish some kind of social dominance thing where, like, everybody's a part-timer except me, which, you know, I I understand that sometimes people do that, but it's complete crap. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, the people having fun are not our enemies. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And there is no wrong, bad fun. Uh, If people show up at a table and they have a great time, they won. Yeah, this specific one we were being tasked with on uh, my Twitter feed on depending if you play it and have fun, you're not doing it wrong as it was being accepted as a platitude and there was no substance behind it, which I think kind of you missed the point or you failed to see the forest for the trees sort of thing. If you're having fun... You know, you're doing it right. If you take it seriously and you spend a lot of time laboriously searching uh, the historical precepts and philosophy and theology behind it, yeah, good on you. Good on you. If you play it just to, like, discover how the game system works and you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever and you're just coming along and finding out things as you go through and play the game as a self-discovery process, you're doing it fine, too. There's. Yeah, and if you really just play it so that you can have the basic background knowledge to get on the internet and explain why everybody else is wrong, <laughs> uh, you've lost. Uh, yeah, what you know that you you have not t- you have lost the lead. Uh, yeah, playing them. playing the game just to uh, discover historical and philosophical virtues and explore them. Hey, that's part of the game, too. But I think that anything where you come across as authoritative really ends up hurting not only your personal playing experience, but that of others. So that's just my two cents, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it. two hoots and a Hades what I think, but, you know, take it for what it's worth. So thanks, Joe. Nice hearing from you, and hope everything's going fine. Congratulations on the 100th episode, by the way. So Yeah, bravo. All right, so we're going to turn to to a little bit of advertising and be right back with our topic, so stick around. Okay, and thanks for sticking around. So we're back with the topic of the day. Yeah, we're really... This this is not going to be entirely a love letter. There's some serious news in the mix here, but, uh, you know, Talislanta is a fond memory we would love to see reissued in this era. But in a more timely sense, we're talking a game that is very soon to have its first new edition since its inception about a decade ago. Yeah. And we're talking about Pathfinder. Actually, uh, their second edition's already been out. Uh, yeah. It was released at Gen Con, did very well in sales. And uh, much to the delight of many of the fans of Pathfinder system, it's, uh, it is a kind of redo from the ground up. 
but it is also uh, very much in tune with the spirit of the original game. But yeah, uh, this has not been a radical alteration of text. You know, it, it's it's a little reinvention, a little tweaking, uh, some uh, changes in style of play mm-hmm. uh, that. It, I think we can break a couple of those down a little bit uh, further into this, but uh, big picture, uh, it's the first retreatment of Pathfinder since its creation, and its second incarnation uh, is coming on strong. It, it's showing good signs of uh, making a splash in the marketplace and securing Pathfinder's continuing legacy as the you know open gaming license inheritor. Uh, which now, correct me if I am wrong, but they have stayed very close to the OGL standard, correct? Um, I think that this is the biggest departure they've had from the OGL. I think this is one of the games that pushes it, and I'm, I don't have the rule book. Uh, I do have the uh, playtest version, but I don't have the actual one yet. But uh, again, we'll talk about that in a bit about the uh, second edition. What we want to talk about with uh, Pathfinder tonight primarily is that we want to speak about its legacy and why it's important to remember why Pathfinder is important. Yeah, well, why does it even exist? Right. And that's tied to its importance. Why is there a game called Pathfinder that's a lot like D&D? So let's delve. Gee, Mr. Peabody, is it time to get in the Wayback Machine? Yes, that's right. We're going to set the Wayback Machine all the way back to 2008 when Wizards of the Coast announced that they were going to come out with a 4th edition. And, of course, they did. And 4th edition was announced. They'd already had a company called Paizo that was publishing Dragon and Dungeon magazine for them as licensees. They paid for the exclusive privilege of printing very, very specific Wizards of the Coast products. Now, there's two things that we need to start with is the SRD and the OGL. Now, we throw out these money letters, but what they mean is the SRD is the standard reference document for Dungeons and Dragons. And it was primarily meant to be a very specific rule-oriented progress. Like you had to follow the D&D system pretty close. You could make some changes in classes and a few things here and there. But you had to be very, very playable outside or right out of the gate with the core rule books, not uh, go too divergent. But with that said, and this cat interrupting our podcast... <coughs> I apologize for listeners. Don't Critics, hey, man. Yeah, I know. They're just really all over the place tonight. Um, <laughs> we've got a we've got a feline heckler. Yeah, I'm going to go attend to that. We deserve no less. <laughs> uh, we're the angry cat speak of gaming podcasts. <laughs> no, uh, the dawn of Pathfinder brought us to (laughs) a unique position in gaming history where there were two principally D&D-like games running at the same time. But before that, we're talking OGL. Yeah. uh, SRD, Standard Reference Document. Yeah, which was meant to be pretty specific to the core rulebooks. Now, you could borrow a few more things from the core rulebooks, but you still had to be very careful about specific things like beholders and mind players, which... Wizards of the Coast kept for themselves. But they allowed Paizo, of course, to use these intellectual properties, if you want to call them that, as to publish uh, Adventures in Dungeon and Dragon magazine. Because they clearly had the creative people who were enthusiastic about the game at the time, this minor company. Uh, 
operating under the auspices of Wizards of the Coast. Right. Lisa Stevens was one of the original uh, people that helped start and found Wizards of the Coast before the whole Magic the Gathering thing. And, of course, this ties to the Talisalana because, well, Wizards of the Coast was the first one to pick up the Talisalana license as their flagship role-playing game when they started the company. Yeah, and I believe that was the fourth edition and final edition. Third. Of, third no, edition. The third. Okay, yeah. they released two editions. Uh, yeah, the first no, one was no. kind of like a proto-edition, and the second one would, was uh, the full-fledged, like, this is Talisalana, the role-playing game. Welcome to it. Super core book. 87, yep. And then the third edition was... Kind of a, a reimagining and uh, kind of, they put together a lot of different top of the uh, source book and advanced the game a little bit more. You got to see basically what third edition was going to be like from this game. But So Wizards had, uh, you know, some nice people working on some amazing things that, uh, you know, frankly, game related were, were going pretty gangbusters. Yeah, and Lisa Stevens was a, founded uh, Paizo. But uh, they dropped the license when they announced the fourth edition coming through. And so they were kind of left without any purpose. So they reinvented themselves in a way to carry on the legacy of third edition. Yeah, they there was a thing called the Open Gaming License. Yeah, now when we talk about the SRD, which was very specific to the core rule books, the SRD was going to go away. It was still around, it was self-perpetuating, but since the core rule books were no longer going to be maintained, it was kind of left aside, and they started with the GSL, which is the Gaming Standard License, which you had to pay a fee to publish in 4th edition. Now, in the annals of gaming history, it's listed as a bad decision, because the SRD, all you had to do was publish the boilerplate in the back of your rulebook, and you were good to go. The OGL was much more forgiving. It was more open. You could change things. You could put not only new classes but new concepts of how to play the game. So the OGL was seen as kind of the lesser sister, but it grew into its own. And worth mentioning, during the entire era of 3.5, before the 4th edition, the OGL had become the standard that allowed this enormous influx of independence to publish material, thereby increasing the amount of well, basically online activity and offline activity. Uh, people were creating their own material left and right. Tiny little, uh, oh, what, what should we, what would we, cottage industry level yeah. sized gamer groups. You could do were, your three core rule books yourself with the OGL. Yeah, and it could all conform to the same system used in 3.5. Uh, so you're right. I mean, it spread exponentially. It just, you know, flooded the market with all kinds of terrific creativity, which I always approve of. It's not supposed to be, to me, a lockbox where, you know, like somebody has absolute total control over all material that it will ever be released. Uh, look, you can do that out in the world, and that's certainly a a good theory if you're having intellectual property issues and you've got something that has a limited value for a short period of time, like you invent a new medicine or something like that, uh, or you write a brand new song. But you get years down the road, and if you zeroed out anybody's ability to exercise any creativity or to participate or interact with it, uh, and it's you know kind of held apart from everyone, uh, it withers on the vine. It, it becomes socially irrelevant. Uh, the OGL made these 
you know, gaming creations relevant to everybody. Yeah, the OGL was kind of left on its own. It, it stood on its own uh, legs, so to speak, and it was seen as maybe a lesser cousin or relative of the SRD when the SRD was relegated to the dustbin of gaming history, or so they hoped. The OGL was the main uh, impetus for carrying on what would to be 3rd Edition's legacy. Now, think what you will about 3rd Edition, but we have to set the Wayback Machine a little bit more for between the transition between 1st and 2nd Edition, and more appropriately to the transition from 2nd to 3rd. A lot of people, when 3rd Edition came out, did not like it initially. They felt that the game went too far, that feats were something that's never been a part of the game. And also other forms of the gaming, uh, the system itself, like skills and class features and things like that, just didn't seem to jive with what people felt were appropriate for the Dungeon Dragons game. Now, of course, you'd hear the same things from the uh, third edition to fourth edition, but the fourth edition, when it came out, was ill-received by a lot of people who felt that the game not only changed dramatically again, but this time didn't follow through with a lot of the precepts that had been the legacy of Dungeons and & Dragons. And Pathfinder really set out from the get-go to capture those people and pull them into their core audience. Well, and let's talk about this specific moment, okay? I mean, 4th edition rolls out. Uh, the open gaming license is dropped. Paizo picks it up smartly. Here's this thing that, theoretically, Wizards of the Coast no longer needs. And, I, look... And it's still my opinion. I'm just going to throw down on this one. It's one that I, I don't really compromise on much. I don't have a whole lot of ferocious opinions that are in contra you know, that there's no wiggle room on. But this is one of them. I feel very strongly that the corporate culture of Hasbro had intruded enough that the OGL and its kind of you know loose-natured acceptance of other people publishing materials was unacceptable to that corporate entity. You know, that the, the mindset there was, no, no, no. You know, you should have total ownership beginning to end. Should be absolutely no, like, you know, no remoras hanging off the shark. Uh, and when they dropped the OGL, they made the critical error of letting somebody else pick it up, thinking that they were going to move on without everybody else. Well, uh, to be fair, the OGL was still around. None of them have been invalidated. The SRD is still around if you want to use it. You just have to use the 3.5 and 3.0 core rulebooks, which aren't being published anymore. But the OGL allows a different dynamic to enter in. And more importantly, when Paizo took over, well, didn't take over. They just put it out there. They were coming out with a new product. A lot of people were curious, and they did an extensive alpha and beta test in-house. And then they had the extensive material from 3.5 to draw on. So they felt very confident going forth with a new role-playing game. And the initial outing of Pathfinder was very conservative. They didn't change a whole lot. They cleaned up the rules here and there. They tidied a few bits. and uh, It had some unique qualities that were Pathfinder-only type things. And right. New spins on certain creatures, things that had never existed in D&D before. But, I mean, come on, D&D was famous for, like, the new monster of the week. All right. Uh, so uh, this was nothing that was so far outside the pale that nobody would have considered it uh, gaming. Unlike what was happening with 4th edition, where they had kind of drifted farther from the original core concepts in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd edition. They drifted far enough away 
that it felt like a stranger to people who had been playing for 20 years straight. Like literally nonstop, you know, gaming, 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 gaming. We played every single edition. What the heck is this thing? What is this unholy amalgam? Okay. <laughs> unholy, well. What, what, this is not oracalcum, okay? Made from strange alchemical ingredients because oracalcum is theoretically useful. So, oh, wow. No, all right. I was a little put well, off by the collectability, the, you know, kind of phased in approach of how, like, how can we market all of our stuff in one game? And they sort of hijacked the core concept of D&D to do other things, which sometimes you really just need to focus on doing the thing. Do the one thing that, you know, this is what it's for. This is what it does. And I felt very strongly at the time that somebody had really had more of a sitting there in a marketing room vision, which uh, intruded into the design mm -hmm. and had less to do with what the gamers actually, we'll make them like it. You know, and that was the attitude that came out at the time when people rejected 4th edition. And along came Paizo with Pathfinder, which happened to be everything that people had liked about gaming up till that point. And wow, boy, could you tell that well, people liked it. Yeah, they did. And it was very well received. There was a lot of fans of the 3rd edition system, and some people didn't like it, and that's fine. I personally uh, did not jump on the uh, Pathfinder bandwagon. I went right back to 1st uh, edition. But uh, I did get to play some 4th edition, and while I liked it, and I don't want to turn this uh, topic into we hate 4th edition. I do. No. I'm okay, kidding. sure. Right. Well, I'm I mean, not actually kidding. More like gently chiding. No, it wasn't gently chiding. It was, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm pretty rotten about all it. Right, but, well. but Pathfinder filled the gap. It it. Prospered in the dead zone left behind by the absence of a game that was genuinely like D and D, uh, and all of a sudden, it didn't just blossom. I mean, it spread like hogweed, just whoosh. <laughs> yeah, it was all over the place, and uh, people were playing it. And the reason why I think Paizo did it, and, and well, to get back on the topic, uh, when Paizo came out with. Uh, Pathfinder, and that became their core product. They really uh, pushed it hard, and the biggest thing that they pushed it into was Adventure Pass. Now, when they were running the uh, Dungeon Magazine, they had started the Adventure Pass uh, idea concept when Wizards still had control of uh, the Dungeon and Dragon Magazine. They had not licensed it out yet, and they had done the Shackled City Adventure Pass, which was pretty well received, but they only did it every other month rather than month after month. So <clears throat> where one month would be a complete Shackled City adventure and then the next month would be all a bunch of other things. They came out with the next adventure path, which was the Age of Worms, if I'm correct. Yes, I'm absolutely sure that it was Age of Worms was the next one, and that was very uh, ambitious where they devoted half the magazine uh one month to uh, the adventure path, which was kind of a per, uh, interlude sort of setting, and then the next month was just complete that adventure path, all content. So now I, I am going to pause for a moment and reference something about the the vision thing. Uh, noteworthy was that while the fourth edition crew over at WOTC were really looking forward and they were really pushing hard, 
They were very frustrated with some of the results they got uh, in sales. Uh, and there was much bandying about of like whose fault that was. And of course, the gaming community tended to, is pretty fractious to begin with, and they kept yelling, "Yeah, it would be your fault. You didn't listen to us at all. This is nothing like our game." Uh, while the company kind of obligated its staff to come out in public and give the answer, "No, you you people are doing it wrong. Uh, you you don't understand like how to like play a great game. You know you you." You're not really gamers if, if you don't understand why this version is the best version ever. Uh, the total state of denial didn't work. Pathfinder and Paizo, on the other hand, they went back to the well. Instead of looking into the future, uh, they were looking back, and they started developing product that reflected a more early style of gaming, a more affectionate remembrance of campaign-style play. Uh, the stuff that really brings people back to the table for big, you know, like six-month, one-year, two-year, three-year campaigns. Right. Uh, and they provided both kinds of material, okay, in staged releases. There were individual modules like, hey, here's a little one-off. You can go out and have a little you know, fun, and you know, here's a little dungeon bash for you. And then here's an enormous campaign arc where you can get vested in half a year's worth of play. Having both things on the table, there was a respect for all the different kinds of gaming out there, not a kind of demand that, no, no, you've got to do it our way. A kind of open acknowledgement that, you know, like, well, you know, gamers like lots of different stuff, so let's give them some basic toolkit for both of the kinds of things they like and see what happens. And it worked. Uh, supporting their game with repeated, uh, well-followed-up. You know, you didn't have, like, well, yeah, there was a two-year gap between this and the last product. You did not see that with Pathfinder. They no, were right on it. They were doing the uh, Savage Tide when 4th edition was announced, and they uh, finished up the uh, Savage Tide Adventure Path, and then they were looking for where our, their next big goals were, and that was the rug was kind of pulled out from underneath them. So they came out with a new role-playing game. Now, what made the role-playing game so successful was the fact that they embraced adventures. Much like the Giants series or an Against the Drow or the mega campaign from Temple of Elemental Evil, Slave Lords to the Drow to the Giants to Queen of the Demon Web Pits. That's where they were looking back to and that's where they were looking to the future. Also with the hype that was generated around campaigns like Dragonlance or even oh, Planescape yeah. where they were able to generate uh, excitement we're playing in a brand new campaign. That was what made Pathfinder really sing. It wasn't so much the system 3.5 or 3.75 as people like Pathfinder <laughs> or Mathfinder or Rules Finder. Oh, please, it's not that bad. One of the things that Pathfinder has also been renowned for is its complexity. And uh, I'm going to get into the one of the things that made the rounds last week. Which yeah, I let's, thought was, let's do a little nitty gritty. Let's break down some system stuff. Um, Pathfinder allowed you to make a character just about any way you wanted to. You could take a standard fighter out of the rule book and he'd be a pretty cool cat. But you could also take a uh, altered class feature of the fighter, like the uh, Bladesmith, or Blade Warden, excuse me, and where you were a, just you just specialized in swords and blades and you took it to the nth degree 
And that was still a pretty unique character. Or you could customize your rogues. And that's what people really began to associate with Pathfinder. They were built in a feature called Class Features, where you gave up a standard class feature in lieu of a bonus or new feature from this alternate class. Example and, being, for instance, the, the sense of balance as you tweak your character. Like, for instance, the Blade Warden, you're not going to be you're you're going to be that much weaker with regard to other weapons outside your specialization. Those things are off the table for you. You have sacrificed these things in order to be more gifted at one thing. And they balanced it well. It's not like you crippled the character. Right. You didn't you're not losing anything, but you may lose a class feature like for a lot of rogue abilities you lose trap finding, but you gain something else. Whether it's like you're a smuggler or you're a guild thief, you may not be looking for traps and dungeons. You may be getting a diplomacy bonus. Yeah, strong on negotiations. Or the ability for your perception checks to be alert you of danger so you get an action one round or or one minor action before combat starts as you are aware of danger and traps. Or if you're particularly skilled in the negotiating end of it and the the dangers inherent in uh, dealing with other people who have competing agendas, (laughs) you may not have a strong wisdom score, but you might have a couple of skills that beef up that sense motive. Yeah. So you, like, oh, I think he's angling for something here. And they used the feat system really well. They cleaned up a lot of the uh, kind of vague notions about power attack and cleave and things like that and standardized them. Now, they were still running pretty close to the 3.5 or 3.0, whatever, uh, engine that powered the game. They cleaned the skills list up a little bit and codified the cross-class skills and it's like, okay, you just get a bonus to your class skill. We'll make it easy on you. And that was really cool. Now, they came out with supplements in a rather measured but consistent manner. And they also came out with a lot of good adventures besides just adventure paths. Um, There are several noteworthy. The Masks of Golden Death was a pretty good one. Uh, Yeah, we covered that, uh, did we not? Yes, we talked about that. It was was a most excellent piece of publishing. Um, But their first offering was Rise of the Rune Lords, which was an epic tale to introduce the world and its prehistory into a campaign arc. And it broke down in the first three as kind of, you didn't know really where it was going. First, there was kind of mysterious dungeon, long hidden, that you had to go after. And then the next one was a, a plague of undead ghouls scouring the countryside. And then finally, in the third one, you know, you go into the mountains and you meet the infamous ogres that are, threatening the highlands of this area that you're inhabiting. Isn't that the era, or isn't that the one where uh, the mage I was playing cast Greece? No, that was uh, the into the Stroval Plateau. That was the fourth one. Yeah, I cast Greece and a bunch of ogres slid. Yeah, uh, aided by a darkness spell. Yeah, yeah. darkness, Greece, they go sliding into a pit, and then I cast Firebomb. Well, they had a long fall, too, but hey. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the mangled survivors were suddenly ignited. And then on top of it all, I'll fire (laughs) Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. That was a very very fun one. Yeah, the siege on the town of uh, Sandpoint with the Long Fang and the Stone Giants attacking. Oh, which, you know, I love uh, being a, a party of adventurers assisting a town during some kind of siege against it. Very Seven Samurai. 
Yep. You know, which is a classic homage to one of the great films of all time. Makes for great adventure fodder. But uh, besides Rise of the Rune Lord, they went far and wide. They went with uh, Second of Dark- Second Darkness, which had a comet falling, uh, being summoned by Abeleth back into oh. the uh, world where you had to go down to the Vault of the Drow to fight them. <clears throat> uh, you also had to uh, Legacy of Fire and Curse of the Crimson Throne. And it just got better and better with each release. And, uh, you know, we have some other ones like Iron Gods was one of my personal favorites, kind of. Uh, An like, homage to Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Yeah, technology. Where the techno stuff intrudes into the campaign, but is suitably limited so that it, you know, will not radically alter campaign balance after a certain amount of time. You, you will wear it out. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you can take that lace, uh <coughs> Mark III with laser rifle out of Numeria, but uh, <clears throat> good luck recharging it without any type of other existing technology with you. Yeah, and with no basis for comparison, what are your maintenance skills on this item? I think none. Uh, well, it, if you're a Technomancer, you've got it. You've this got ain't like idea. sharpening a sword, son. Nope. So if you're a Technomancer, you had a good one with that one. But yeah, so they've done really good, and as good as they've come, uh, they've hit almost... All the right notes. It was time for Paizo to show people who they were again. Yeah, Fifth edition came been, out. They, and They've been taken for granted, okay? I mean, yeah. Pathfinder, I don't think they're doing anything wrong that they radically need to change. But, two yeah, they, years. They come out with an evil campaign, which was uh, Hell's Vengeance. And people are like, yeah, okay. But wait, it's an evil campaign. People have been asking about this for a while. And people were kind of like, yeah, but... They had been producing with such regularity and predictability that kind of people took them for granted. So time to change things up, and so they started with the second edition. But also into this time, the fifth edition comes. Now, I'm going to break format here a little bit with the topic and go on a personal rant about Wizards again. With all the fracas about fourth edition, and I'm kind of ambivalent towards it. I, I was saying earlier, I got a chance to play it. I They asked me at the uh, Gen Con what I think of it, and I said, well, it's a great game, but it doesn't feel like I'm playing a wizard in D&D. Now, if you had named it Magic or, or some other game, Everway or however, whatever game, I would have been just fine with it. I've been like, yeah, this is a great game. It's solid. It's playable, and uh, it feels like it's very intuitive, and it's easy to grasp at its beginning levels, but it has a layer of complexity. Yeah, it felt a lot to me like somebody had put a uh, Cadillac uh, hood ornament on a Fiat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, true, <laughs> Just, yeah, it did change. You, you're it playing a lighter. It doesn't feel like a Cadillac. You know, it doesn't, Because no. it's not. <laughs> but they did it, I think, out of, during this time, World of Warcraft was really big. And they took a lot of the concepts of the video game way that WoW was played, or World of Warcraft, in rather than like restricting it to once a day to a number of rounds. For instance, a lot of, uh, in playing WoW, raiding and fighting a boss fight required using your cooldowns, which, you know, you would use an ability and maybe it would be on a cooldown for a full minute. So you could still continue doing your normal stuff, whether it's hacking or casting spells or healing. But whatever you were doing, you had to be careful and time your cooldowns to use them at the right specific moments. And that judgment call was made, and it had a tactical kind of feel to it. Now, they took this to 4th edition, which, you know, put the same kind of timer on things, but a video game is so much more dynamic. It's so much more intuitive and immersive. It's very now. 
as opposed to sitting at a table with friends, which is a very different environment uh, to the individual sense of sitting at a computer screen. So there, there's kind of something is lost in translation there. There's a personal touch that goes away uh, when you step away from the video or when you step away from the video games and away from the computer and you sit down at a table with dice. So it, it just felt like, uh, unlike, you know, hey, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. You got your peanut butter in my chocolate. <gasps> this is great. This was one of those, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you got your bar of dial in my bud. <laughs> huh. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, it did seem a little kludgy at times. But, <laughs> you know, their heart was in the right place. But Yeah, I don't think they meant ill, but... They put a lot of effort forth explaining why 4th edition was a superior game and what you're missing out on. And then comes 5th edition, and they were very slow to pick up onto that. Ah. Uh, the, the release was very, like, the Player's Handbook came out, and three months later the DM's Guide came out, and then... Yeah, the the extended timeline for release uh, on the materials needed to play was unfortunate. That was badly timed. They overcame that mostly not through their own genius or the true merits of the game itself, but because there was quite the surge of internet activity and yeah. participation and talk. I mean, some of it was podcasting and some of it was uh, YouTube channels and people were doing amazing, innovative things with gaming. And this was their brand new edition. So as yep. they were starting off new shows and creating new content online, this was the game they happened to be playing at that moment. And what do you know? It really helped. Okay. It spread the word. It got mm -hmm. other people involved. Uh, they got a lot of free advertising mileage yeah. out of people showing their affection for the game and a lot of uh, older players coming back to the table for the first time in years. I really like 5th edition, and I think it's a worthy addition to the legacy of D&D. Yeah. Not only does it feel like it, it's very customizable. Don't like feats? Ah, toss them out the window. You don't have to have them. Yeah, the accessible layers of difficulty. You know, yeah, you don't like skill points? Get rid of them. Very customizable, depending on the style of the DM, the level of experience of the players. You know, you, you can fudge here and there as you see fit. Uh, and so they've kind of reclaimed their place. Yeah, uh, Pathfinder they, had the edge for a very long time. Yeah, about five years, they were very close on every month selling them out. And, you know, the outselling the D&D &D brand of 4th edition. And then with 5th edition, it oh. shifted. And yeah, there was, there was much denial that that was even a thing amongst the staff of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, but the, no, the no. numbers do not lie. They were getting spanked like a British MP. Oh, oh. wow. <laughs> wow. So Pathfinder, when uh, it started to wane a little bit, it was seen as kludgy. And uh, compared to 5th edition, it's a lot more math heavy. But it was time for Paizo to take the reins back to show everybody who they were and what they could do. And so the second edition is with us now. And I'm just going to throw my two cents on this one. This is not a slam against second edition. I think it's greatly needed and it's highly improved. It's more intuitive. And first of all, it's its own game. And I am, albeit slightly less enthused, because I, I'm still in the camp of, um, you know, you were already awesome. It, it's right. very hard to be more awesome than awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm a little less overwhelmingly enthused, but again, in this case, I, I'm not especially upset. They went 10 years without an edition change. I respect that, because I've 
played any number of games over the years where the perpetual shift of editions was incredibly frustrating. Like yes, four or five yeah. years at the outset is all you got with a game before they, here's the brand new edition with changes in the rules. And you're like, all your old material is now useless. I hated that so much that if a game makes it 10 straight years, I'm like, you know what? I want to let this one pass. Good on you. Right. And Pathfinder has become a new edition. Now, there was a lot of hate for the character sheet. Some people said, what the F is this? And I was kind of like, wow, I understand it's really complex. And I don't understand half the terms on here either because I don't have the book in front of me. But I can learn. And I've pulled out even worse character sheets before. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever, like, stumbled into expert, or sorry, uh, true first edition AD&D, after having started in basic and expert campaigns, that big character sheet... Oh, boy. ...would yeah. mind fry. Like, oh, my... Holy cats! They're just... There's so much here. What do I... I, I don't even know what that means. What, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've been through it, so it, it doesn't intimidate me in the slightest. Right, but people were kind of putting a lot of hate on it, and I was like, oh, okay, well, look, I, I like uh, complexity. I'm going to keep playing first edition. Uh, not out of hate for second edition. I think the second edition was needed. I think they needed to show people who they were and get back oh, out in the market. In due time, we'll probably get our feet wet in the second edition, but you know, not just yet. Uh, yeah, I think I actually have pretty much uh, established that uh, I like the first edition a whole lot, and I think I'll probably be playing it for quite a while. I'm not set on any one time to quit playing because I have so much stuff. And I'm getting set to expand my understanding of fifth edition. Right. Uh, for AD&D, or so that I have a better working knowledge of it, because at, at the moment, it's like a very introductory level uh, knowledge of how it's played, and I really want to expand enough to be able to DM competently, uh, which at this stage, I cannot, because uh, I, I, I'm not saying everybody else has to hold a high bar, uh, okay? If somebody is inexperienced and is trying a new system... Go for it. Do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And for me, I kind of set an unnecessarily high bar, okay? Just because I've been doing this a long time and I hate to fumble in front of people. It's, it's strictly personal, not a, a bias that I apply to other people. Sure. I mean, that that's how you play is play the way you like. And people will either play with you or not and you have to be able to adjust your expectations remember those two x's experience and expectation yeah yeah so you have to have that but nonetheless pathfinder uh, going into a new edition is you know there's still a dearth of material literally hundreds of playing hours still await and i'm still really happy with the first edition system oh but, yeah when, once we've tapped out all the available materials you know it certainly then i might start number. creating my own stuff <laughs> well you never know but the second edition as it's out i'm very happy that it's doing very well and I, i'm pretty sure that it will but i it would apply this analogy as we wind this down a little bit to the cola wars i think that D D is the coca-cola <laughs> and Pathfinder is the Pepsi Cola, with Call of Cthulhu being the Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I think those three games have remained. Uh, Pathfinder has now set itself fully in place. And I mean, of course, now you have the like the Mountain Dew, which is Shadowrun. I mean, we can break this down in a number of ways, but let's not get too carried away with it. 
there's a lot of places in gaming for different types of games, and I think they're always going to be with us. And that's a great thing that there is a different approach. It's the Bud Miller. You know, of, great tastes great, less filling. Tastes great, less filling. You know, more it, rules, it, less complication. More rules, less complication. Yeah, yeah. You know. It it is an endless debate, you know, but they're all part of the gestalt. Yes, yeah, so, and like Mike said, play what you like. Play from your freaking heart. Play with fire. I <laughs> uh, game like a riot on fire. There you go. So we got that in there. But I think uh, we've worn out your good ears and patience, and uh, I think it's time to wrap things up. But no, yes, no, hats no. off to Pathfinder. Uh, carrying the fourth of the third edition legacy for 10 years without another edition. That's pretty yeah. darn good. And, and uh, when fifth edition was ready to come out and bring back a kind of earlier style of play uh, to, to give a more appropriate nod to the origins of D&D, uh, Pathfinder had been there carrying that torch all that time. So, and they've really shown Wizards of the Coast what long campaign arcs can do for you. Yeah, it you know, this is material gamers want. This is stuff that sells. This is the, this is a profitable enterprise, uh, and being receptive and adaptive is a better recipe when dealing with gamers than kind of iron-fisted digging uh, your heels in and standing your ground. Yeah, yeah. hard-handed diplomacy. You're like, no, you're doing it wrong. Bad, <laughs> wrong, fun. Stop You'll it. get nothing. Good but- day, sir. <laughs> Yeah. I said good day. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that does not work with gamers. We're a crotchety, recalcitrant bunch, young and old alike. And we hold opinions very close, <laughs> just like we had with the Is Gaming Fun discussion. Yeah. But uh, one thing the Paizo uh, and Pathfinder have done is shown that adventures can be an inclusive part of your gaming experience. That everybody goes through this adventure, has different experiences, but hits the same kind of high notes. Like, whoa, you remember that one encounter in the... In that dungeon of doom, oh man, that just almost killed our entire party. Our cleric saved our bacon from the fire that time, man. You know, boy, that was tough. Everybody comes away with the table remembering certain things like that, and then and later on remember. down the line, those more from just tales from the table to legendary encounters that make things like the Curse of Strahd happen or Ghosts of Saltmarsh carry right. the gravitas. That how many? Do. How many first edition players remember the? Giant crab in White Plume Mountain. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the boiling lake behind it that if you shatter the barrier, the boiling lake pours in. And, oh, and no. You know, that I lost a perfectly good rogue playing that particular encounter. But it was epic. That's and that's right. just it, is that Pathfinder remembered. It's the epic moments that everybody talks about after they walk away from the table. Keep those alive and... You will always have something that gamers want to buy. Well, right on. But uh, with that, we're going to sign off here. And uh, before we do, we just want to remind you to get a hold of us on our Facebook page. The Dice of Screaming have a Facebook page. Just type that into your search thing on Feeble Book, and it'll send you right to us. And also <laughs> uh, on Twitter, where you can get a hold of me at Death Hand Gaming. That's D E T H A N D Gaming. Or Magi Box. Right, get a hold of us, let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you'd like us to talk about, or just send us a message on the Inker app. But until next time, may, may the, the dice always roll in your, your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>